welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. If we haven't met yet, my name is Yelena, and I'm one of the pastors on the team here at Commons. And as part of my role, I get to support over 30 Commons groups that meet in different parts of the city during the week to create and offer the space of connection uh, for our community. And most of our groups pick up the conversation that starts here on a Sunday. And over the past four weeks, we've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount. On launch Sunday, we followed Jesus and the large crowds to the mountainside, where people gathered around him to hear what he had to say. And Matthew tells us that people have already seen Jesus in action, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And now all these people, farmers, day laborers, sophisticated city dwellers, curious Roman pagans, and the religious elites, they all follow him to this mountainside to hear what it's all about. And we are invited to pull up a chair and join in. So Jesus begins his sermon with eight statements that challenge our perception of the world. He tells us that the real world, the one that we need to imagine and fall in love with and start inhabiting, is the one we cannot create on our own. We cannot bring it about by ourselves. But when we catch that vision of reality and allow it to come alive in us, in our families and in our workplaces, even the smallest things we'll do will bring out the flavor of the divine in the world. And then two weeks ago, we skipped ahead a bit to hear what Jesus has to say to those of us who tend to worry a little. And Bobby reminded us how our worries get a bit lighter when we make an effort to help someone else. And then last week, Scott brought us back in the narrative to see how this way of life that Jesus is setting out in this sermon required some radical revisioning of the law without abolishing it. And how it's also true for some of our old stories and experiences of faith. They might not do much for us anymore, but we can't quite discard them yet because they still point albeit imperfectly, to this vision of the new world that's taking shape and breaking in through Jesus. And today we're picking up in Matthew chapter 6. And before we do, join me in prayer. Our loving God, as we come here this morning, we are grateful for the gift of this space for the gift of this community, for the freedom to gather and sing and pray and worship, for how the needs of our souls and our bodies are met. And we ask you to draw near to those who cannot say the same. We're also mindful of those who are dreading this coming winter, whose bodies and minds are working against them, and who need strength to keep putting their lives back together. Would you speak your peace in those places, we ask. And as we look at these ancient words through which we believe you choose to reveal yourself, would you be present to us in all your gentleness and love? 
and may our hearts be open to meet you and not be afraid. Amen. Okay, today we are talking about practice makes human, unreal presence, you, me, us, and restoring focus. So, at this point in the sermon, those gathered around Jesus heard about righteousness a handful of times. While discussing the law, he told them that unless their righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they would certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then, just a moment ago, he told them, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And those are pretty high expectations. We are dealing with some heavy stuff here from the very beginning. And now we hear perfect and think flawless. Someone who never makes a mistake. Totally unattainable goodness. But Jesus' hearers hear this word and think something else. Not that it makes the task much easier, but when they hear perfect, they think telos. And this was a word that was used to describe something that was completely in sync with the reason for its existence, something that has fulfilled its purpose. In other words, to be perfect means to live in a way that is consistent with who you were made to be. And that's what they hear. Okay, Jesus, we get it now. You are making us into a community of people who are different who live with an alternative vision of the world, who work with you to bring it about, and who are fully alive. But how do we become this sort of people? What needs to happen for this kind of life to take root and grow in us? And this is the question that we will be exploring today. Tish Harrison Warren, in her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, says that our way of being in the world works its way into us through ritual and repetition. We are embodied creatures. Yes, we like to think that our actions and decisions flow from a carefully constructed worldview with all our values perfectly in right places. But what really happens is quite the opposite. Most of the things we do as we go through our days are precognitive, and sometimes we don't even know how and where we pick those up. Well, I love learning new things. And I usually try to learn a one practical skill a year. Knitting, making kefir, Marie Kondo decluttering, stuff like that, you know. So, not that it works, but <laughs> try. So when we moved to Calgary two years ago, I decided to learn how to make sourdough bread. And some of you here, skilled artisan bakers, could have warned me about the level of commitment that it would require. <laughs> That winter, a friend told me that I talked about my sourdough as if I had a living, breathing preschooler in the house. <laughs> I, I fed that starter two times a day to keep it alive and active. I bought a kitchen scale to measure the exact ratio of water to flour to feed the starter just the right amount. And I had to plan my week around baking bread. <laughs> because first, I'll walk you through this. First, you mix the dough. Then you let it sit for a few hours. 
then you need to fold it every half an hour and do it for five or six times. And here goes half of your day. <laughs> and then you need, it, you need to let it relax and shape it and let it relax again and final shape it. And then you stick it in the fridge for 12 to 16 hours to develop flavor. And only then you bake it at 500 degrees with some steam to get a nice bubbly crust. And it tastes divine, but it takes two days to make a loaf of bread. <laughs> And I'm sure, I'm sure we all had this experience. When you pick something new, you pick up something new and you follow the process and you work hard at it, but then comes a moment when it clicks and it stops being a practice that you do and it starts working its magic on you. And you discover new things about yourself that you can actually learn patience and that you can experience time differently and how after mastering all those basics, you can be creative and you can improvise. Everything clicks and the practice becomes life-giving and you get the satisfaction from the work well done, from the craftsmanship, from the integrity of the process. And the same works for our spiritual lives, too. Warren writes, we don't wake up daily and form a way of being in the world from scratch. We move in rituals and liturgies that we have set over time, day by day. And these habits and practices shape our loves and our desires and ultimately our worship. The three traditional practices that shaped the Jewish worship were giving, prayer, and fasting. Every Jew was expected to give to the poor as a way of expressing care and love for the neighbor. To pray at least three times a day as a way of seeking God in all of life. And to fast as a way of learning discipline and self-control. So Israel's way of being in the world as followers and imitators of Yahweh was supposed to work its way into them through those practices and rituals. And they were meant to help them become the people they were made to be. So when Jesus tells his disciples, be perfect, we'll see in a moment that he is not giving them any new practices. But he approaches those three traditional practices the same way he approached the law. To live in a new way, you need to examine what you do and let it come alive in you in a new way. So as we read, pay attention to both the individual and the communal aspects of those practices and how one cannot really happen without the other. We do not become fully alive on our own. We need practices to remind us of our humanity and we need each other. So hold on to that thought because we will come back to it. Now Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So here he introduces the three practices and gives us a metaphor through which he's going to do it. 
To be seen, theathenai, is where we get our English word for theater. And in Greek, it was used for public shows and spectacles. So Jesus wants his listeners, he wants us all, to imagine a semi-circular stage with a planned performance and a gathered audience. And now the actors are about to show up. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So first go the trumpets. And it is a literally exaggeration to fill this imaginary stage with sound and music. There's really no evidence that people announce their gifts with trumpets. But it was quite acceptable to put the names of exceptionally generous donors on public monuments and carve them out in stones. And some people were definitely into that. Now, hypocrite is actually a Greek word for a theater actor, someone who acts under a mask. And here it's not necessarily someone who's morally corrupt or needs to fake their faith to stay afloat in this religious society. It can be a genuinely religious person whose blind spots do not let them see that their actions actually contradict some of the basic principles of their faith. And in this case, they give a gift to help someone out, but they don't realize that the way they do it actually brings those people down. In the honor-shame culture, attracting attention to the gift meant public embarrassment of the one who had no other choice but to receive it. And the rabbis did not condone this kind of giving. Now, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. At those times, the only room with a door in a house was a storage room. It wasn't glamorous, it had no windows, it was just a space to facilitate the everyday life of a household. And this is where Jesus wants prayer to happen. Place with no audience in the most common, most ordinary, most boring moments of our lives that we take for granted. Then when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. To receive a reward was actually a technical term used in commerce for someone who received the full amount and gave a receipt for it. So every time Jesus says it, 
they have received their reward in full. It has this finality about it. The show is over. The actors have been paid, and there's nothing more to show or to pay for. But we should be careful not to see these warnings through a guilt lens. Jesus is not singling out the Pharisees here. He is just showing us that the rituals can be practiced to either form an individual and build up the community or to malform a person and harm others. There is nothing wrong with being seen when we worship or pray, or fast, or serve the community. We're not supposed to hide. In fact, we often need to see someone else's faith alive and active to be encouraged in our journey. And of course, we want to be seen by others because we are relational beings and we long for connection and we want to be known. What Jesus brings to our attention here is this subtle desire that we have that others would see us the way we want to be seen. When we believe that if someone really knows who I am, they will walk away. Or we think, if only they see that I'm good at this, they will let me in their inner circle. Or if I extend myself to help others, they will be there to help me when I'm in need. And we all, we all have those personas that we present to ourselves and to God and to others. And you know, we wanna be seen a bit more confident, a tad more virtuous, a little clearer about what cause to support, you know? And Jesus gently signals that we should pay attention to what's going on in our hearts when we do that. And says, be careful. Because this kind of hiding behind the mask, this projecting an image that we think is more likable than the real me, dehumanizes not only us, but also those with whom we are meant to live in community. We risk making ourselves into a product to be liked or disliked, and we make others into a means to our end. Instead of becoming more real, we all become less. One of my favorite Russian Orthodox writers on spirituality, Anthony Bloom, said this in his book on prayer. As long as we ourselves are real, as long as we are truly ourselves, God can be present and can do something with us. But the moment we try to be what we are not, there is nothing left to say or have. We become a fictitious personality, an unreal presence. And this unreal presence cannot be approached by God. And you know, we can get so used to wearing masks. They are comfortable. We know how to rationalize them. And we know what side looks better in what light. And it's the scariest thing in the world to take a mask off. Because we don't like it, how soft and how bent and how bruised and how needy we are under it. And it's just too bad that God can't heal a mask or through it, you know? 
but maybe, maybe in the safety of a room with no windows and a closed door, we can find a tiny bit of courage in our fear and allow ourselves to be seen. Now, in the middle of this three neatly structured warnings that we just read, we have a somewhat awkwardly tucked in section on prayer, which also includes the text that we know as the Lord's Prayer. So let's pick up in verse seven. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Then this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Just to go back for a second to the power of rituals to shape us into a certain kind of worshipers. What we're looking at here is probably one of the oldest traditional pieces of Christian worship. Because we find pretty close variations of this prayer in the Gospel of Luke and in Didache, one of the ancient documents that was used by the early church for Christian instruction. Moreover, most biblical scholars agree that the Lord's Prayer could well be one single piece of writing where we have the actual words of the historical Jesus. After Jesus taught his disciples this form of prayer, it lived on as an oral text. It was prayed in secret by individuals and prayed in groups as part of the liturgy of the early church. And this was probably one of the reasons why the gospel writer had to include it in the Sermon on the Mount when it was put together at a later point. Yes, it breaks the flow of the sermon a bit, but it had to be in. And this again reminds us that before becoming a piece of teaching, this prayer had already been a practice that was shaping a community. That it was a lived liturgy before it became a piece of theology and not the other way around. And that we live our beliefs and our vision before we can even clearly articulate them. So there's not much space to explore the content of the prayer in details today. And we actually did a three-part series on the Lord's Prayer last year called The Problem with Prayer. You can find it in our podcast on YouTube on commons.church. But I do want us to look at it through this question that we asked in the very beginning. What helps us to become the kind of people who live the good news of Jesus? And what I find quite interesting in this whole section preceding the Lord's Prayer is how fluidly Jesus uses the pronouns. He constantly shifts from plural you, as in you all, to singular you, you alone. And when you all pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you all, they have received their reward in full. 
But when you alone pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you alone. And the contrast between the public practice of religion, you all, and the inner work that needs to be done individually, you alone, is very clear. As well as the contrast between performing before others, you all, and taking the mask off before God, you alone. But when we look at the Lord's Prayer, it's suddenly all about our, our Father in heaven, Now, Heavenly Father is Matthew's favorite name for God. And no question that Father language has a rich theological meaning, but it also has a potential to hurt us and to make God feel distant. If this is part of your story, as it is definitely part of mine, before we move on, I just want to quickly share with you an exercise that I learned from that Russian Orthodox priest and theologian that I mentioned already, Anthony Bloom. In his reflections on the practice of prayer, he says that there is a moment in prayer, as in any human relationship, when it becomes live. It's like when two people begin to single out one another in a crowd. And then comes that moment when you come up with a nickname for a person. So Bloom says, if you can say to God, you my joy, or when you can say, you the pain of my life, or you who are standing in the midst of it as torment, as a problem, as a stumbling block. When you can address God like this, without the generic Lord God, then you have established a relationship of prayer. And we do not have to invent those names. We just need to look at our experiences and name those that apply to God. He says, call God by the name which God has won in your life. Call God by the name which God has won in your life. And if the father language hits a tender spot, maybe try naming some of your experiences this week and see in what unique and personal way you know God. Maybe your name for the divine at this moment in your life is hope, or maybe it's mystery, or maybe it's you who's holding me in my pain, or maybe it's you to whom I'm scared to get too close. Again, with the Lord's Prayer, Jesus brings us all the way back to where we started. We looked at how practices remind us of our humanity and help us move from you all to you alone. But I think that with this prayer, Jesus is leading us deeper as we name our Father, our daily bread, our ability to give and seek forgiveness, our propensity to make wrong choices, and our deliverance from everything that seeks to harm us. I believe this is another reason why the gospel writer places this prayer, even if awkwardly, in the middle of these examples of human theatrics. Jesus wants you and me to move from you all through you 
alone to our and us. He says, when you pray like this, it will put your outer and your inner world in focus so that you will be able to see yourself and your community and God a bit more clearly. The our prayer will work its way into you and will set you free from this urge to seek affirmation, to earn love, to use attention. And you will start seeing those with whom you already share the daily bread when you give or receive a kind word, a warm drink, a comfortable hug, a comforting hug. Or you'll see who you still hold hostage over your wounds. And you'll set them free and set yourself free. Or how your family and your community are struggling against all kinds of evil already and you are there with them, not just for them. Pray like this and over time, the personas, the masks will gradually melt away and you will be a real you before a real God in the presence of the real people. This is who you were made to be. Now, I can only give this to you as a promise. I do not know where you are with prayer. Maybe you're on this 30-day streak and you feel fantastic. Well, maybe you feel like yeah, you're just plodding along and you're not sure about this whole being shaped by the rituals business. Maybe you're like me and before doing something, you want to gather as much information, do all the research so you can then sufficiently locate yourself in the experience. Or maybe you love praying the Lord's Prayer and you pray daily. Well, maybe this whole conversation is creating anxiety, but you're willing to give it a try. In a moment, I will invite you all join together in saying the Lord's Prayer. But as you go into this week, may grace hold you and meet you in your real story and give you joy. May you find courage to name God in your experience of life at this moment. And may you know that God you seek is closer to you than you can imagine. In secret, in public, when you're alone, and when we are together. Would you now join me in prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.